you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, a live literary event series from LAist. We are back with guests, author Amanda Montel and actor Bella Lavelle. You can find us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum. Tickets at LAist.com events. From the Mom Broadcast Center, this is Take Two. Me, Martinez. Congress sends a nearly $2 trillion COVID relief bill to the president's desk. Now, once he signs, the city of Los Angeles is expected to get just north of a billion of those stimulus bucks. We'll hear from Controller Ron Galperin on how that money is going to be spent. Plus, L.A. County on how they're targeting Latinos for vaccine equity. It's all ahead on Take Two. Stay with us. From 89.3 KPCC and kpcc.org, this is Take Two. May Martinez, thanks for joining us today. Coming up, looks like students in the Los Angeles Unified School District could be going back to school next month. We'll tell you how that might happen in just a few minutes. But first, Los Angeles County is expected to receive $1.9 billion in funds thanks to that massive relief package approved by the House earlier today. Biden will sign it or at least it's on his desk. He's expected to sign it on Friday. The $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan is headed for his desk. And once it is signed into law, it'll provide a direct checks for most Americans and billions of dollars to schools, local governments, and businesses. Now, of that money slated for L.A. County, $153 million is earmarked for Long Beach, while the city of L.A. is expected to get just over $1 billion. Now, for more on what all of this means for L.A. residents and how that money could be spent. We reached out to LA controller Ron Galper. Now, just to set the stage here to get through the pandemic, I know the city has drained reserves, borrowed money. Controller Galper, before we get into the money and how it could be spent, how bad of a financial hold is LA in? Well, we've been running short by about 40 to $50 million per month. Thankfully, we have had reserves and we've been able to defer certain expenditures. There have also been some painful cuts to a number of different departments of our city, including my own department, which saw a 21% cut of people who have been retiring that have not been replaced yet. So there have been a lot of tough choices that have to be made. Uh, But this is going to make a huge difference for Los Angeles city government, for services that are available to Angelenos, and of course, all of that stimulus money for people who are in need. So then uh, when it comes to how this money should be spent, uh, so many needs the city is facing right now, Controller, what is your recommendation for how officials figure out where it goes and why? Well, I want to make sure that we deploy it in a timely fashion, but I also want to be sure that we are financially prudent in how we do that. First of all, it will be about restoring certain kind of service cuts that we've had. We'll also make sure that our departments have the resources that they need But I think it's very crucial that we look at what are the kind of investments that we can make, that we can leverage, that have a multiplier effect, that help create more jobs and also help create a more strong economy in the private sector as well. When it comes to services, you mentioned services possibly being restored. Which ones jump to the top of the list for you? Well, certainly we want to make sure that we have the funds that we need to keep up city facilities, our streets, our parks. And also we have to really address 
in a much more targeted way the crisis that we have in our midst of homelessness. And this is something that I've reported on uh, quite a number of times in audits that I've done. And the city has a great deal of work that it must do to improve this tragic situation. How will that be addressed? I mean, considering that uh, over the years, taxpayers have voted for certain measures to to address homelessness, how will some of this money, the, the money coming from the form of the stimulus uh, bill, how will that be addressed uh, to homelessness? I think that what we need to look at right now is how to help get people off of the sidewalks and off of our streets. And while it's very important to have investments in long-term housing, that's absolutely crucial. At the same time, we need to make sure that we have the facilities and the services uh, for those who are suffering from mental illness, from addiction challenges. And also, the more that we can do to get our economy going and get jobs back, uh, the better it's going to be for people's ability to get off the street. Will this be money that is separate from the measures that uh, voters have, uh, have voted on over the years? This would be separate from the measures that uh, voters uh, have voted on in previous years. Uh, And I've reported on those and unfortunately the slow deployment of that money. But uh, I really wanna see this money deployed much more quickly. That's going to be, uh, of course, the job of the mayor and of our city council. Uh, But I'm gonna do everything that I can to make sure that we deploy these monies in an expeditious, uh, but a prudent way. Talking to L.A. City Controller Ron Galpern, how will you be able to do that? Considering you mentioned how some of the money that uh, has been earmarked for homelessness in the past has seemingly been bogged down, what will you be able to do to allow this cash, this cash infusion, to go more directly toward homelessness in a much speedier fashion? One of the uh, things that I created actually was a COVID spending dashboard so that everybody can go online right now and see the federal funds that we have received already exactly how that money is being spent. Uh, I intend to create the same kind of vehicle so that we can all see in real time how that money is being deployed and also uh, hopefully create a series of dashboards that will help people understand exactly the effectiveness of that money so that on an ongoing basis, we understand how we're using it and how we can use it to its best impact. Now, there are a number of uh, area nonprofits will try to zero in on this. Already today, we heard from groups such as the Community Coalition. In supporting the highest need Angelino families and essential families, we're calling on the city to dedicate $100 million to provide two years of guaranteed basic income of at least 1500 a month to families in highest need areas. Uh, Controller, what do you see as the next steps for navigating all of those needs and demands? Because you know this is going to be a bit of a, a tug of war with a lot of different people wanting uh, a bit of this. Well, it's impossible, as we all know, to fund everything. Uh, but we have to look at what are the best investments that we can make. One of the things that I also created recently was the first ever equity index for the city of Los Angeles. And and what we did was uh, for each and every single neighborhood in LA, actually look at a whole bunch of different factors. What is the level of rent burden? Uh, What are the poverty levels? Uh, What are the numbers of renters versus owners? The percentage of people who have health insurance versus those who don't. And it really gives a very clear picture, neighborhood by neighborhood, Uh, of what the challenges are. I'm hoping that both those within city government and within the many nonprofits that are engaged with our city government use that as a guide for 
where we spend that money and how we can spend it to its best impact. And the money the city was expected to borrow, I think $150 million, will the city still need to do that? Uh, Well, I am hoping that that will not be the case. Uh, Look, we are thankfully uh, with a treasury in which we can often borrow from ourselves as well. Uh, And I believe that there's an opportunity to look at our own bonding capacity. Interestingly enough, uh, we have actually a relatively low ratio in terms of our uh, bonded indebtedness. And there may be some opportunities to look at that and how we can invest in infrastructure in a way that uh, helps improve uh, the uh, the infrastructure of LA, but creates jobs at the same time. What does this money represent, uh, controller? Because you know, more people are getting vaccinated, albeit not at the rate that I think everyone would like. But it just seems like we're turning a corner, not just as a city, but also as a nation. What what does this money represent to you? Well, we are turning a corner, but let's also be frank that uh, the recovery is not going to happen overnight, much as we would like that to be the case. Back in March of last year, we saw unemployment nearly double, and some of those jobs have come back, but we still have a higher rate here in Los Angeles of unemployment than in the state, and our state has a higher rate than the rest of the nation. And that's to say nothing of all those people also who are self-employed or who are gig workers who are bringing in a lot less than they did before. So that stimulus money, I think, is going to be uh, crucial to uh, really helping to revive our economy. And parts of our economy are going to come back more quickly than others. That's Los Angeles City Controller Ron Galperin. Thank you very much. Great to be with you. Thank you so much. All right, another big news. The Los Angeles Unified School District has reached a deal with its teachers union, paving the way for students to return to classrooms probably by next month. LAUSD and United Teachers Los Angeles announced the deal last night. And here's the union's president, Cecily Meyer Cruz. It has taken time and painstaking effort to ensure we got an agreement that is right for the entire LAUSD community, students, parents, community members, and educators. KPCC education reporter Kyle Stokes is here to break it all down, Kyle. So what's in the agreement? Uh, How does this deal bring students back to campuses? Yeah, so it's basically three conditions, um, and two of them were were more or less in hand, sort of. Um, But the union uh, and the district have come to terms on one of those things, which is a a clear set of safety protocols and standards. The second big thing that the union really wanted was for LA County to drop out of the purple tier. Well, that appears to be about to happen. And then the third big thing, the kind of X factor here, was whether or not all staff could be fully vaccinated. It's not whether the two sides agreed whether that should happen. Superintendent Austin Butner has also said that he wants teachers to be fully vaccinated before returning to campuses, but um, the issue was supply and whether teachers would have enough. But recently, uh, the district secured uh, the dedicated supply of vaccines, and now all that really needed is is time for, for staff to get vaccinated, uh, and after they get both doses, as well as the, the two weeks 
uh, of the waiting period that you follow up after your second shot so you get peak immunity. And after that, under terms of this deal, uh, when teachers have had that opportunity and access to all of the time necessary to get those doses, uh, that means that schools can reopen. Uh, last night, Superintendent Butner said, and we have a piece of tape from him here, he said that LAUSD and UTLA uh, came to this agreement without drama. We did it working with our labor partners. Um, we didn't, there were no threats, there's no posturing, uh, no need for uh, name calling. We just felt the right approach was to do it the right way. Uh, and we work side by side with labor partners to do that. And remember this, by the way, is the same Austin Butner who, who went toe to toe with UTLA two years ago during the strike. And it's really striking to hear the difference. And I think that the, I talked to Cecily Meyer Cruz after this this press conference this afternoon, and she, and she was like, well, you know, that shows how serious that this situation has been in LAUSD. Yeah, he says no drama. I don't know, Kyle. It's, it felt like there was a lot of drama, but that, we'll leave that now that you know the deal is done. Um, so, okay, so LAUSD is targeting reopening elementary schools by April 19th. What will school look like when they all go back? Well, so students will attend either in the morning or in the afternoon. They'll be with their teacher in these sort of morning and afternoon cohorts. They will stay. The idea is they will stay with their same classes for about three hours with their teacher, either before lunch or after lunch. Um, and we just learned at the press conference confirming from the superintendent that after that is over, if students need to remain on campuses, like their parents need to go back to work or something, uh, there will be on-campus care for those children uh, by other adults who are not necessarily teachers, but there will be on-campus care. Hello, Kyle, still there? All right, I think we might have lost. A I'm still oh, there here. You are. There you are, uh, Kyle. Go ahead. I'm here. Yeah, I never left. Really, you left me. <laughs> but okay. So you were you were talking about how other other parents or other adults are going to be there uh, with kids. That's right. Yes, and uh, yeah, other other parents or other adults will be there with the kids. Students should be able to stay with their own teacher. Um, that And uh, parents, by the way, can also opt out if they don't want their kids to go back to campuses. They don't feel it's safe. That remains an option throughout all of this. And that just we want to bracket that clearly. What about middle and high school students? When are they likely to come back? Yeah, this is a little less ideal of a situation. So it's later than elementary school when they're going to come back. It'd be the end of of April is what the district's sort of shooting for. And students would be able to attend for the entire day, but they won't be in this normal, like moving between different classrooms to different classes. That's not going to happen. Students will be in what's called their advisory class. It used to be called their homeroom. Um, and their advisory teacher will be there teaching their own class on Zoom while students are sitting at desks, you know, on computers, on laptops there, taking their own Zoom classes and listening with noise-canceling headphones. There are a lot of parents I'm seeing that are, are really not loving this arrangement, and I think that it's a really big question mark how many students are going to go back under these terms because, you know, as one person put it, my kids are going to wait an hour on the bus to drive to a school to sit on Zoom. Maybe not happening. On the other hand, this may be a lot better of a, an arrangement in terms of child care, in terms of in-person support. At least there will be adults and counseling services there. Some students may really need that and want to avail themselves of that option. So big, uh, you know, there's there's some disappointment from, from secondary students and their parents, um, but this is sort of the, the best that they could do under the circumstances of scheduling and all of the restrictions around yeah. health and safety. Um, so... Uh, 
uh, we'll see. That's KPCC education reporter Kyle Stokes. Kyle, thanks a lot. You're welcome. All right, though, timing is not yet certain for when all of L.A.'s children will go back to school. Parents have weighed in on the prospect of it happening fairly soon. Jacqueline Keatsman has a first grader attending an L.A. USD school. I think we're ready. <laughs> uh, we've been ready. We want him to go back, but we do want everyone to be safe and feel safe for sure. Now, Jacqueline and her husband have been able to work from home to help their son with remote instruction, and he's doing well with online learning, but she says... I need him to go back to school because, for me, it's been the social-emotional part. This is when you're building the foundation for lifelong learning. This is when kids learn about focusing and listening to your teacher or listening to whoever's at the front of the classroom, you know, how to work together, learning how to compromise with kids his age. He's not getting that stuff at home. Jacqueline hopes a return to school will be permanent, but if coronavirus infections surge again or vaccine-resistant variants become a bigger factor, she says she'll bring her son back home. Now, parent LaShonda Williams feels a little differently. She says her first grader has special needs and has difficulty keeping a mask on for long periods of time. Between her working from home and additional support from 42nd Street Elementary, she says her son is thriving during remote learning so he too would need to be vaccinated for me to feel truly comfortable he'll wear his mask but at certain points he's going to start fumbling with it he's still losing teeth so he's going to put his fingers in his mouth to settle with the tooth which goes along with the hygiene issues you know washing hands etc Lashana says she's heard from both other parents of special needs kids and family members with health issues who also still plan on keeping their kids at home. She also told us that one parent called her in a panic, afraid in-class attendance would be mandatory. Robert Heron has a five-year-old in transitional kindergarten, or TK, and has been eager to get his son back into the classroom for some time. I'm willing to accept a very high level of risk for the benefit of my child's education. But he wonders how long it'll be before students can get the full benefit of being in the classroom. Can they get the level of education that they could get in February 2020? Can they get the level of socialization that they got in February 2020? But Robert says LAUSD schools have to start somewhere. All right, Latinos are lagging way behind in vaccination rates, and regrettably, they're one of the groups leading the way in COVID-19 death rates. Now, lack of transportation, shaky internet access are some of the reasons for their plight, as are fewer places to get needed doses. Coming up, find out how L.A. County is doing to make vaccine equity for Latinos a priority. That's coming up when Take Two continues in about 60 seconds. Stay with us. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and streaming on the KPCC app. I'm Martinez. After a rocky start, over 2 million doses of the COVID-19 vaccine have been administered across L.A. County, with 58% of people and 65%, uh, 65 and over, excuse me, receiving their first dose. But the thing is, equity remains an issue. 
Black and Latino people continue to be vaccinated at lower rates than whites and Asians, despite having the highest COVID death rates among the population. It's an issue playing out all across California, too. There are many reasons for this, including reliance on online appointments when many of the hardest hit communities lack reliable Internet access and also loopholes that allow people from wealthier and wider communities to cut the line. Here to talk about what L.A. County is doing to make the vaccine rollout more equitable, we reached out to Dr. Eloisa Gonzalez. She's the spokesperson for Spanish media on the COVID vaccine for the L.A. County Department of Public Health. And when we spoke to her earlier, she talked about why it's been so hard for many Angelinos to get that shot. We know that navigating the online registration system has been a major barrier for many people. Uh, and we've been working with a number of community leaders and organizations who are actually handling the registration process for those who are eligible and are not easily uh, able to use the online registration themselves. In addition, we have a call center that's mm-hmm. been able to register people uh, without requiring individuals to go through the online interface uh, and approximately 3,000 appointments just this week alone at the county-run sites are being filled through those efforts. As of yesterday, there are over 150 sites in the neighborhoods that have been the hardest hit. And our hope is that we're able to really make sure that the folks that get vaccinated at those sites are, in fact, residents or workers that live or work in those neighborhoods. Considering how quickly everything has come together with the vaccine and trying to set up a system where people can access it, it almost feels like we're all building the plane as we're flying it in a way. How much frustration would you say is legitimate for people to have over the process? Well, it's very legitimate. And we share in folks' frustration about, you know, the the difficulties in trying to access vaccination appointments. We have two vaccine websites. One is in English, the other in Spanish, vaccinatelosangeles.com and in Spanish, vacunatelosangeles.com, which are really great places to start for finding out when you're eligible to be vaccinated, and then to actually also register the appointment. One of the biggest issues, however, is that our capacity for vaccination across all of our uh, hundreds of partners that we have across the county far exceeds the quantity of vaccine that we've been allocated to date. So we have probably half of our capacity to vaccinate folks that is remaining unused due to lack of vaccine shipments to us. We are hopeful that in the near future that'll change. Uh, as you know, you know, we, we all heard the president announce that there will be enough vaccine for all uh, adults by the end of May. That would require, obviously, massive vaccine shipments across the entire country. In L.A. County, we're still waiting to hear about when those uh, shipments can be expected. But we're hopeful that as soon as we do receive those, that the existing capacity uh, will be able to accommodate rapidly vaccinating everyone that is eligible. Now, we spoke to Veronica Sanse. She's a member of the L.A. Black Worker Center, a coalition of labor unions and community organizations that's been helping to get the word out about vaccinations. She stood in line for leftover dose at Kedron Community Health Center in South L.A. and observed mostly white people standing in line who are not from the community. To me, that told me that there was no outreach, no education given to the community, black or brown. Sanse questions why these people uh, know how to get in line for leftover doses, but people who actually live nearby are seemingly unaware that that's something people can do. Doctor, why do you think that is? Uh, We're trying to really address that by having groups of trained community health workers that are actually going out into these hard hit 
communities and allowing folks the opportunity to ask questions if they have any about vaccination, where it's available, if they're eligible, for example, and also provide assistance potentially with registration. In addition to us actually doing more outreach with not only our community health workers, but also through uh, partnering community-based organizations in those neighborhoods, uh, because we do realize that, you know, lack of knowledge of the availability of vaccine in these neighborhoods can definitely pose a barrier. And we want to try to do everything that we can to reduce those barriers as much as possible. Doctor, though, why is the county, though, sticking to this online sign-up system when it seems very clear that many people can't access it or can't figure it out? It's not our LA County appointment system. It's a statewide vaccination appointment system. So we do have a little bit of um, ability to have them designated for certain populations. And, and we, in fact, are doing that. So actually starting this week, uh, we have specific days that are assigned to specific sectors. So we're trying to get the word out that, you know, for example, if you're a food and agriculture worker, you could, there's two days a week that are specifically all the appointments are designated for you. And we're working with restaurants and other food and ag partners to try and get the word out to their employees that they can come on those dates. Yeah, and I guess part of this too, doctor, is to try and ensure that people who aren't eligible at the moment uh, don't get a vaccine or a dose that should be going to somebody else. I can understand if a vaccine is is going to get wasted or spoiled that day, but you know, generally if people aren't in the group that's eligible, they shouldn't be able to get it in front of someone else. You know, every appointment, every dose that's taken by someone that's actually not eligible is really kind of stealing it from someone who is potentially very vulnerable and, you know, not obviously then able to access that vaccine for themselves. So we do ask that folks who have the means to be able to try and look for backdoor opportunities, if you will, to try and get a vaccine appointment and, a, and an actual vaccination to refrain from doing that. I mean, it's it's not really fair to those folks who are have been waiting in line, who don't have a choice, whose jobs, for example, put them in high risk situations for exposure so that, you know, individuals that are in those actual eligible sectors are the ones that actually accept the appointments and receive the vaccinations. We're talking to Dr. Eloisa Gonzalez, spokesperson for Spanish media on the COVID vaccine for the L.A. County Department of Public Health. Now, we also spoke with Dr. Osvaldo Asbun Avalos, an emergency medicine resident with L.A. County USC Medical Center in East L.A. about this issue. A lot of the patients that he sees are immigrants with very limited English proficiency. And he said that even as a doctor, the county mobile clinics are inaccessible to a lot of his patients. Today, I went on the site to try to see how to get a vaccine appointment at one of the mobile clinics, and I couldn't find it. <laughs> I, I looked through all the Google pages, and there were a lot of articles from the media about this new move by the county, but I couldn't find how to actually make an appointment. And this is a resident at, at uh, USC Medical Center. Um, how can the county be better at helping people who have the, the least access to information get the vaccine? Thank you for that question. We have efforts that are going from the forward-facing outreach LA County mobile vaccination clinics all the way through our uh, community promotoras who are actually going out into the community and letting folks know about these availabilities, having people sign up and register. I don't believe that the mobile vaccination sites, because of their nature of being mobile, are requiring folks to have an, a scheduled appointment. So as long as you know that a mobile vaccination site is going to be somewhere, I think as long as you're an eligible in an eligible category, you can go ahead and 
show up and present your documentation and be vaccinated, which is possibly why they're not listed on our registration for make an appointment site. Now, on March 15th, people with intellectual disabilities and some specific medical conditions will be prioritized for the vaccine uh, in California. And L.A. County health officials say that uh, they'll open vaccinations to those folks on that date. Uh, Doctor, what type of documentation will people need to bring to prove these medical conditions? Does the doctor's know all it's going to take? I don't believe the doctors know. Uh, It's not clear yet what the state, if the state is going to have specific requirements for how individuals are going to be able to to prove, if you will, that they have one of these eligible conditions that allows them to access the vaccine um, once the, you know, Monday comes around. Uh, So as soon as we have more information about that, we'll definitely share it. But at this time, it's still a little bit vague to us exactly how people are going to be able to document that they're going to be falling into one of these you know, categories of folks that have a condition that makes them eligible for vaccine for that population, for that group. Now, Dr. Osboon also talked about how certain zip codes have disproportionately high vaccination rates and that uh, for equity, that needs to be addressed. Here's Dr. Osboon again. If we're trying to actually decrease the infection rates and decrease the deaths in our county, we have to address the areas that are actually getting hit the hardest, not just a blanket statement that our county needs vaccines. Now, the state last week announced it would set aside 40% of vaccine doses for residents uh, in disadvantaged communities. How do you hope that that will trickle down to LA County and how much do you think it'll help? You're correct. The state did set that requirement. At least 40% of vaccines um, in the counties are going to be, in, in LA County this week, are going to be distributed to communities with the lowest scores in the Healthy Places Index. Uh, That's where we've already identified and have 150 sites in those neighborhoods that have been the hardest hit. So as soon as we do receive those uh, doses, we've already identified the sites where in these hard hit communities, those vaccine doses will be shipped. I know the state's uh, My Turn website does not allow clinics to offer to only offer vaccine appointments to certain zip codes. Uh, doctor, how will you ensure that those vaccine appointments go to people in those areas and not to people who are chasing the vaccine? At the point in time that individuals show up for an appointment or for vaccination, we do require that they provide three uh, pieces of information as documentation before they are administered a vaccine. So one is their you know, identity. They have to make sure that they can prove that they are the person that whose name is on the appointment. So something with a photo and their name on it. And the other thing is that they need to prove that they live or work in LA County. So that can potentially be used. I don't believe we're using it at this time to determine you know, whether or not an individual falls within a certain radius of that vaccination site to identify, you know, whether or not they're actually eligible and and only if they live or work in that area, according to the documentation that they're able to provide. I don't believe we're at that point yet. It's a potential strategy, but I don't know that we've had any conversations about limiting it that we really want everyone that qualifies to be able to get vaccinated. We're not trying to make it more difficult for folks. And we are hopeful that in the coming future, as you know, we're, we're hearing our president say that we are have, going to be having access for everyone uh, who's an adult that wants the vaccine to be able to get the vaccine by mid-May, that these issues will eventually not be, be non-issues because vaccine will be much more widely available. That's Dr. Eloisa Gonzalez, spokesperson for Spanish media on the COVID vaccine for the L.A. County Department of Public Health. Doctor, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.
LA County is getting closer and closer to phasing into that red tier. That means more stuff gets to open up. Movie theaters, theme parks. I mean, they're not going to be filled with people or anything like that, but at least people will be inside them, smiling, having fun. Plus, a big film streaming sneak preview that was a little too sneaky and should not have been streamed. That's coming up when Take Two continues. Stay with us. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and kpcc.org. I'm e. Martinez. The parent organization for the Golden Globes wants to restore some of that shine back on their name. And why Disneyland fans are sounding like they're standing in front of a Mervyn's department store in the 90s chanting, open, open, open. It's time to go on the lot. Stick your head out and yell. You want a chocolate? All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Rebecca Keegan is our guide. She's senior editor film for The Hollywood Reporter. Hello, Rebecca. Hi, Ann. All right. The Hollywood Foreign Press Association has had a rough couple of weeks. Uh, they've done it to themselves, but uh, now they want to crawl out of the hole they dug. Uh, Rebecca, first remind us how they got there. Well, a couple of weeks ago, the L.A. Times published an investigation revealing some of the unethical practices or sort of ethically dubious practices at the HFPA regarding perks that they accept from studios and and compensation. Um, The Times also covered the issue of diversity at the organization and revealed that there are zero black members out of the 87 members of the HFPA. And they uh, printed a story that said the former president of the HFPA had recommended hiring a diversity expert, but that the board had declined wanting to look at more candidates. All right. So that was then. What's going on with them now? Well, those stories all came out around the Golden Globes when there was a lot of attention focused on the organization. Now the HFPA has said it has hired a strategic diversity advisor, Dr. Sean Harper of USC, uh, to advise the group for five years. They've also retained a law firm to review their policies and operations and advise them on some of the ethical issues. And Rebecca, what role did the Workplace Equity Foundation Times Up play in this decision? Well, Time's Up laid out some very uh, strong recommendations for the HFPA. Um, They called for all of the current members to resign and reapply under new criteria. Um, Some of that criteria includes having five years of quote-unquote credible journalism experience, 30 published pieces from the last five years. Um, uh, Time's Up also wanted to abolish lifetime membership. Um, They were saying that members would need to publish at least 10 pieces in a calendar year to retain their voting rights. Uh, They also suggested that the group expand from 87 members to more than 300 and that it lift the restriction of being based in L.A., which had been, according to the HFPA, one of the barriers um, for getting new members who could afford to live here. All right. Now, sounds reasonable and doable, I would would think, Rebecca, but where might any pushback come from? Yeah, I mean, asking all of the current members to leave is kind of bold. But yes, uh, in addition to that, if you do that and you have all new members, they would then have to elect a new board, which would hire new management. One of the things um, that Time's Up suggested was that the Golden Globe ceremony take place after Oscar nominations have closed. That would certainly remove one of the big incentives for stars to participate. It is 
kind of like a, a campaign stop on the way to an Oscar, on the way of an Oscar campaign. So if you remove that, that would take away some of that incentive. Um, also, Time's Up is asking that 80, that members watch 80% of nominated projects before voting. I think that's a very worthy thing to ask, but it may be hard to get them to do. I don't understand that, Rebecca. Make me a voter on something. I will watch everything. I will watch I everything will. <laughs> and cast an <laughs> honest vote. My goodness, I can't believe they I have believe to you. make people yes. do that. All right, we're talking to Rebecca Keegan, senior editor of film for The Hollywood Reporter. All right, uh, Rebecca, word is uh, us L.A. County folks will be in the red soon, but uh, in a good way. Uh, what's on the COVID-19? horizon that's making Hollywood jump for joy. Yeah, the movie studios are looking forward to that sweet, sweet red tier life. Um, <laughs> if the current COVID numbers hold in LA County, then movie theaters here would be able to open at 25% capacity or no more than 100 people for the March 19th, 20, March 19 to 21 weekend. And that's a big deal. LA is still the biggest movie going market in the country. It's been closed for a year and that's prevented studios from releasing some of their big tentpole movies. They just can't do it with a market as big as LA closed. All right. That's one shoe set to drop, but Rebecca, should I wait because there's more? Right. In addition to movie theaters, uh, Disneyland is also looking to open a little later. We're looking at late April in that case. They've not set a specific date, but that's what CEO Bob Chapek uh, indicated um, at an investor day. Uh, the the restrictions in California would mean that you could only be from in the state if you're visiting Disneyland. There would be no indoor dining. Some of the rides would stay closed. Um, but that would still be good news for the some 10,000 furloughed employees who would be able to come back to work. Um, so that's, you know, some things that had been closed for a year are starting to open back up, which is very good news for the entertainment industry. Yeah, for business, for everyone involved, for people that enjoy it and people that are working those things. All right, now to a, a big streaming release that a lot of DC comic fans are excited about, and that's Zack Snyder's Justice League. It's set to come out next week, but Rebecca, the, uh, some people in the world have already laid their eyes on it, or at least a piece of it. W what happened? Yeah, this was a weird one. So, uh, as you say, this this is the four-hour director's cut of, of Snyder's Justice League. It was supposed to come out March 18th, but on Monday, some people who tried to watch Tom and Jerry on HBO Max <laughs> instead got to watch an hour of Justice League. Um, this guy in North Carolina tweeted about it, and then a bunch of people started checking it out. One of my colleagues at, at The Hollywood Reporter was able to watch it for a while on HBO Max. Very, very peculiar and definitely, um, I don't think, intentional. Now, Rebecca, I could talk for hours about the odyssey of Zack Snyder's Justice League, but since I have the self-control of a toddler on this story, can you recap, please, for us why someone like me can't wait to see this four-hour movie? Right. Well, Justice League first came out in 2018. Zack Snyder started the film, but he couldn't finish it. He was uh, pulled away because of a, a family tragedy. Joss Whedon took over, and the film was really not reviewed very well. It wasn't received particularly well by fans who were constantly demanding the quote-unquote Snyder cut of the film. Last May, Snyder announced that he had shot new scenes, um, including with Ben Affleck as Batman and Jared Leto as Joker. 
Uh, that moment was in the new trailer. There's also for a fan like yourself, um, more scenes with the flash, who is, I know one of your favorite characters. That's me. So I'm there's clapping. been a lot of fan anticipation for this, um, before the strange, uh, little burst of it that appeared on HBO max on Monday. I've already asked for the day off March 18th. I want to make sure I <laughs> devote plenty of pregame leading up to the justice league four hour movie. And then plenty of post game for me to kind of, Kind of decompress afterward. So there you go. No one expect wow. me to work on March 18th. Uh, that's Rebecca Keegan, senior editor for film for The Hollywood Reporter. You can follow her tweets at that Rebecca. Rebecca, thanks a lot. Thanks, A. All right, if you love reality TV, and admit it, you do, and you love podcasts, guess what's coming together? Find out when Take Two continues in about 60 seconds. Stay with us. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and kpcc.org. I'm Ian Martinez. Keeping up with the Kardashians, the real housewives, the bachelor and the bachelorette. Whether or not you'll admit that you've watched one, two, or all of these kinds of shows, and you know you have, you've at least heard the names. And today, we're talking about reality TV and a new podcast that dives into its history and its impact on the larger culture. And it's called Spectacle, an unscripted history of reality TV, and it's hosted by reality TV expert Mariah Smith. You might think of reality TV as the guilty pleasure. Basic, basic, basic. Something you watch when nobody else is around. So, like, I have had sex, and I, Jesus still loves me. Nothing more than an escape. For more on this podcast, we turn to Nick Qua, host of the LAS Studios show, Servant of Pod. So, Nick, I'm of uh, firm belief, and I've told you this before, that if uh, if something gives you pleasure and it's not hurting anyone, <laughs> you should not feel guilty about it. I watch all of those shows or have watched them in the past, so I am not ashamed. Uh, Nick, the, the LA-based podcast production company Neon Hum Media released the podcast just last month. So tell us about Spectacle. What more can we expect if we give it a listen? So the series, uh, you know, kind of plays out over 10 episodes as written and hosted by Mariah Smith. Uh, she's a writer, comedian, television producer, and as mentioned, a reality TV expert. She's, you know, comes from a place of being a big reality TV fan and as a person who has like sort of direct knowledge of how it works. And the series tries to tell a linear chronological history of reality television as a, as a genre and a phenomenon. And it is both uh, extremely sort of well-studied and really smart, but also very fun, especially if you're a fan of the genre like myself and like yourself, it sounds like. Oh, absolutely. My very first radio partner was in the real world Hawaii. Oh, no uh, way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it broke up our show. We, we we had just started a show for about six months, and then he auditioned for Real World Hawaii, got it, and we never did a show uh, ever again. So, yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's that was my indoctrination, reality TV. Now, Nick, you spoke with host uh, Mariah Smith about the genre and her podcast. What shows did uh, Smith choose to dissect and why? 
So she starts with what she argues is like the archetypal origin story of the genre, which is actually this 1970s PBS docuseries called An American Family. And from there she moves, you know, she brings you into what is essentially modern history of the genre. So it starts with, uh, funnily enough, real world. And then it progresses to sort of like the big, like, to 2010s, mid-2000s, like, franchises, sort of Real Housewives, The Bachelor, um, so on and so forth. And by the end of the of this sort of season or series, she's hitting things like Great British Bake Off and The Circle, sort of bringing us to 2020, 2021. And, and over the course of that kind of reflects on how the, the shape and the need of reality television has changed. And you know this, Nick, there's a kind of a stigma around reality TV. Um, did Smith talk about this at all? And has anything changed over the years? Yeah, we we actually talked a lot about this. And, uh, you know, part of it is, well, there is still this observation that um, it's still very much a guilty pleasure, as you talked about. And I agree with you. If it gives you pleasure, should not be guilty about it. But at the same time, reality television has been so much more baked into the firmament of American culture than ever before. Uh, I'm not the first person to say, to observe that our last president was a reality TV president in many ways, both in origin and conduct. (laughs) That's true. But also... You know, um, reality television culture has played out in so many ways. It has seeped into a lot of the social media influencers, that the sort of style and the, and the kind of utility and pleasure you get from it. In many ways, it's like part of the language now, and yet there's still this sort of core tension of like, oh, there's something weird going on here. And and it's funny, like the DNA is spread, spread around, but yet this sort of always of thinking still persists. Yeah, okay, so do we get a sense from this uh, why reality TV is so popular, so entertaining as a genre, and how do these shows reflect our culture and vice versa? Yeah, so those are two like interrelated questions, right? And so, so here's what she said actually about that second question in particular. It really reflects the time we're in and what we need as a as a society, because we needed something that felt like we were wrapped in a warm cocoon during the chaos of the previous presidency and and other ways it affects the world. It's we're seeing what I see it as we're getting what we need emotionally from these shows. Like we didn't have chaos in the larger world. Hmm. We can watch that and it doesn't feel like it's too close to home. It still feels not necessarily aspirational, but out of reach. Yeah, so her sort of like perspective and, and the way sort of the chronological developments of these shows is that they essentially felt this um, viscerality gap that exists in any given point in time in American culture. So if you think about like The Bachelor and the, the, the Real World, that era is sort of kind of marked by this sort of, you know, Bush era kind of relative... Um, you know, volatility, but also still to set a stateness to it. And so, you know, cut to the 2016 and 2020 period, uh, the ways in which that like love is blind fills the gaps is a little bit different, for example. Uh, And at the same time, it ties into these like fundamental rudiments of what's so attractive about this genre in general. It's a little bit like what we talked about with true crime last week, that there's this, you know, for true crime, there are stakes in a natural narrative structure of crimes. And in reality television, it, it consistently feeds into this feeling of aspiration, but also vicarious living. Absolutely. And I was about to say, I'm glad you mentioned the chat we had uh, last week about uh, true crime, because no one wants to be near the crime, right? And in this case, near the chaos of reality TV. At least most uh, rational people don't want to be anywhere near that. But because you watch it on TV, you're kind of close, but you're not in it. And you get to leave. Once once the show's over, you get to go back to your life. So that's that's one of the at least allures uh, for, for me in watching some of this stuff. We're talking to Nick Qua, host of Servant of Pod and founder of the Hot Pod Newsletter. Now, some reality TV stars have also started popping up uh, in the world of podcasts. What's, uh, what's the appeal, Nick? Yeah, so here's what Mariah had to say about that. I really think what's happening is a way to 
get a revenue stream that's not tied to Instagram. <laughs> um, I <laughs> think that they already have a built-in audience, and a lot of them cover the same topics in their own way. Yeah, talking about the Bachelor, Bachelorette franchise, and then there's an endless wealth of guests you can have on because the, the turnover is so high, and it is a booming industry, obviously. So I feel like it's the easiest way to dip your toe in and get the sort of credibility under your belt. You know, in other words, uh, pure capitalism is what we're seeing. (laughs) Like part of it is an extension of the business of, you know, being a celebrity or an influencer that, you know, appearing on a reality TV show kind of gives you that that jump start in many cases. But part of it is also just the, you know, natural appeals of, uh, you know, as a consumer there is demand for this. Like Bethany Frankel has a sh- has a podcast now, and I and imagine it's a huge following who sort of found her on uh, Real Housewives of New York City and to sort of follow her into these other spaces that she sort of creates media and creates businesses in. Any way at all, Nick, that there could be maybe a reality podcast that kind of have that reality TV feel on a podcast. Yeah, I I believe in this. Uh, (laughs) I'm just one of the people who believes that anything is possible. And I know I've talked to a number of podcast creators and executives who've like thought about this or are interested in this intersection. But like, you know, it comes down to the nature of this execution, right? It's still, you still need somebody or a team to be able to unlock the language of what it's supposed to look like in the sort of audio, on-demand audio format. You know, if you watch reality television, if you watch even sort of YouTube vloggers, you can tell that there's a specific language that, that delivers that sort of thrill of what of what the genre is supposed to do. Uh, and, you know, you're supposed to do that in a way that's like cost-effective, that kind of plays into the economics of the of the platform. I think we might get there. Um, you know, not sure if you heard, but like it was recently announced that Paris Hilton is starting a podcast soon where she's going to try out these sort of like short dispatches and podcast feeds that's supposed to give a little bit of that sort of reality kind of influencer feeling. But again, it, I mean, it comes down to, is there is there a, a frame? Is there a sort of a, a creation that's able to, to capitalize on both the visceral needs of reality genre and podcasting in terms of what it's able to deliver as a format? Nick Kwa is the host of the LA Studios podcast, Serving a Pod. New episodes are out every Wednesday and you can find it on Apple Podcasts. Nick, thanks a lot. Thank you. Yeah, it was 1997. My radio partner and I were doing a weekend show on Extra Sports 1150. That was a long, long time ago. And he tells me he's going to Hawaii. He's on a reality show. Real world Hawaii. I said, well, do I get to go with you? No, of course not. He dumped me. But now I'm here with you guys. Uh, If you want to hear more of the show, head to wherever you get your podcasts there. We will be waiting to be heard by you. You can also find us on Twitter, at Take Two. That's at Take Two. I'm there as well, at A Martinez LA. That's good for Twitter and Instagram for your social media convenience. Thanks for listening. Thanks for trusting us with your time. Take Two is back tomorrow at 2. Marketplace is next. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps.